And we are live, back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the Autism Sage herself, Mama Baden. How are you? <laughs> Usually I say, I'm so good. So I am good. Um, I am just frustrated. So let's do this podcast, and let me use my frustrating energy for this podcast. Well, y'all already read the title, so it's going to be something like caregiving, angry version, like how Taylor Swift has her Taylor's version for all the albums that she used to do because her record label was screwing her over. Uh, That's what we're going to do. So we did an episode last week, at least I think it came out last week, about caregiving and the priorities and the choices they have to make. So this is going to be sort of a what happens when you make the wrong choices because a lot of caregivers make the wrong choices and we think it's important to not scare people but to let people know what is at stake and how important it is to think and to prioritize and to make the right choices and to put in the work on the front end so you don't end up in a situation where everything is messed up on the back end. And before we get started, I just want to say there are going to be some darkish topics that I just want to give a trigger warning. So trigger warning, Mm -hmm. everything, everything. So if if you don't feel up to that right now, or you're in a situation or an environment where you don't want to listen to it, feel free to turn this off. But you've been warned. So Stacey, what's on your mind? Well, okay, so it's kind of like I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, my pet peeves, right? My my pet peeves of, and it's, so yes, it's about Stacy, but it's not about Stacy because it's really about my pet peeves come from kids not getting what they need, right? And so I know that I don't have, we, all of us, none of us really have control over the schools, Right. Um, they're going to do what they're going to do. We can try, but they're going to do what they're going to do because grown people do what they're going to do. Uh, my, my struggle is with parents making decisions that don't prioritize their child needs. Right. So I struggle with that because I see the end results, right? It's almost like, like a parent, you know, when a parent tries to tell a child, hey, don't, you know, like drink and drive, right? Because they've already made that mistake, right? Or they've seen what happens when somebody makes that mistake or whether it's, you know, young adults mismanaging their money and their parents warning them, it's because they're trying to avoid them having situations. So I think for me, because I'm very proactive in my approach, there are always ways where I feel like things could be avoided. So I wanted to talk about what happens when you don't prioritize or you prioritize too late and what are those results so your, your kid turns into me just to give you the tldr if you don't want to listen to a whole yeah. episode your kid turns into me awesome. <laughs> so you know i'll start with my biggest one torin and my biggest uh frustration in regards to watching the train wreck, right? Because that's literally what I'm doing. I'm watching the train wreck when parents don't prioritize their child's needs because everything else gets in the way and that becomes prioritized. And usually the everything else is other people's needs, other people's uh, opinions, um, or materialistic goals, right? So I think the one that probably makes me want to scream at the top of my lungs is when communication is not made a priority and devices are not introduced with the excuse of, well, we don't have enough money, right? Uh, Because I fully believe where there's a will, there's a way. And I think one of the things, you know, Torn, I'll I'll say this. um, I don't think I mentioned this in the previous podcast. I have a a parent, I taught her son who was autistic and she was also an educator. And uh, years ago, before I started uh, my business, I called her really, really frustrated. And I'm like, I don't. And she was that, that mom, right? That did it. She did the work. She, I mean, she was like on it. And I, I called her and I said, I don't understand why parents are not 
right? Why are they not doing this? Why are they not doing that? And she said, very simply, she said, they don't see the sense of urgency. And when she said that, I said, I get it. I get it. They don't see the sense of urgency. So they wait. So they wait. They hope someone does it for them. They hope that it's fixed on its own. They just wait and they wait and they don't see the sense of urgency. And when I think of communication, there's a huge sense of urgency. Like when people tell me, oh, well, you know, but my child's non-speaking, non-verbal. I'm like, okay, what does that have to do with them being able to do anything? Where's their device? Where's their backup communication? What do you have in place? And so when, when money is proposed as an issue, um, I'm like, I get it, right? I get the financial. And so my question is, okay, have you applied for any of the grants that nonprofits have? Have you asked family members to contribute instead of buying all that other junky stuff they buy to everyone to put in so that you can get an iPad and get the device when it's half price in April or October? Have you looked and see if your insurance company will approve it? But the problem is the insurance companies make parents go through such hoopla's. And for me as a speech therapist, Torin, I remember, I remember, and this is one of those things that maybe, you know, because people didn't know the struggle, right? They don't realize how good they have it. Um, but I remember when an AAC device was not designed for autistic individuals. It was mostly designed for people with cerebral palsy, intellectual delays, people who had limited mobility, people who had whatever, brain injuries, and they had these big clunky devices, right, that like sat on their wheelchairs. Um, and you had to get it through a special company. And then we got iPads. And then iPads had apps. And then we had apps that gave us access to getting our, getting our own AAC device downloaded on the app, on the iPad. So for me as a speech therapist, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is so great. Parents don't have to wait for approval, right? Children don't have to wait. And, you know, in all honesty, and I am going to say this with just, um, people can perceive it how they want, but when I am told by a parent that I don't have the money. I'm going to see if the insurance can pay for it. Oh, you know, we're not able to. But I see them going on vacations twice a year. I see them in new outfits when they go to church on Sunday. I see them out doing things that cost money. Their hair is done and their nails are done. My hair and my nails are not done, right? Like, I mean, I, I would love to be groomed by someone else. And I'm not saying that I can't, but I prioritize based on what I want to spend my money on. And so when I think about all the money it takes to get your nails and your hair done and to save up for two big lavish vacations every year, you could have gotten your kid an iPad and they could be communicating. But that's not a priority, right? So that bothers me. It bothers me a lot. And it bothers me a lot because I don't expect parents to know about AAC devices. I don't expect parents to understand the concept, um, but I do expect parents to want to find by any means necessary a way for their child to communicate. And I don't think that parents, caregivers, teachers, therapists truly understand what it is like to not have a way to communicate and how you would want to throw a chair every day. Like, I, I don't even blame kids for throwing chairs and hitting, kicking, and spitting. No one has provided any means of communication for them. No one. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't feel the need to correct that behavior until you get what they need. Because it's annoying to sit and wait for people to support you, and they don't. The thing is, in your example, and I'm not doing that sarcastic thing when I play devil's advocate, I'm honestly being serious. A lot of parents, to use your example, don't understand the benefits of the AAC device versus the benefits of getting to go on vacation, getting to take that break from the job, getting to have those experiences that, especially for a lot of families who didn't grow up in the middle class, who didn't get to do that when they were younger, and now they're in the middle class and they want to have those normal experiences because they didn't get to have those having to sacrifice that for an AAC, I think we need to, and this is a question for you, can you explain the importance of that particular choice 
of getting the ADC device and what happens if they don't and what are some of the long-term consequences if they don't, if they don't prioritize the communication? Yes. Yes. And, you know, that's a really good point um, in terms of they don't understand the value. And I think for me, I don't expect them to understand the value, but I expect them to understand the value of their child having a way to communicate with them. Why would they? Because they've never, the problem is human, most human beings are actually not very empathetic. That's when they say like autistic people can't feel empathy. That's actually bullshit. Most people are not empathetic unless they can directly, there's mm-hmm. something that directly ties them in. So they don't understand the pain of breaking your arm unless they have broke, they've had some sort of arm injury themselves. Yeah. So if they've never struggled to communicate, they've never had an issue where they couldn't use mouth words, it's hard to, I'm not defending this, but it's hard to expect the average person to be able to empathize with that. So how can we get it through their heads? How can we put them in that headspace? That's my, and I don't know if you can answer that, but that is my question. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. So a lot of times, um, sometimes parents get very comfortable with, well, I know what my child needs because they know what their child needs because they know their child. And then I have to remind them, but they're not going to be with you forever. And then how are they responding in the classroom? How do we know if they know the answers? They can't tell us they know the answers. There's nothing for them to be able to tell us. Um, so the problem that hap the 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 reason I want parents specifically, um, you know, yes, therapists, yes, educators, but parents are ultimately, you know, it's your kiddos. So understanding the sense of urgency is understanding that the longer an individual goes without a way to communicate, the more frustrated they become and the more extreme responses they have in terms of that behavioral thing that we see that everyone just looks for is sort of demonstrated, right? So think about if you are, um, and I try to, you know, share my example of me uh, with Spanish, right? In terms of when I can't get what I want because I don't know the word, right? I can't find the word in my brain. I can't remember the translation. Now, luckily I have my phone for my backup so I can go to my translator. So if kids had their device, they could go for backup as well. So I try to get them to understand that. And a lot of my families, not all, but a lot of them are English as a second language. So they can kind of relate, but families who are English speakers and don't have to learn another language, it's hard to connect with that. And I think that parents don't realize that means your child won't have a job when they become older. That means your child will not be able to advocate for themselves when they go out into the world. That means your child won't be able to build those relationships that you want because if you can't communicate, you can't build relationships. It's really hard. Like how are you gonna communicate like unless there's telepathic communication? So for me, and I've said this before, maybe not on the podcast, but when I see these videos of, you know, autistic individuals having meltdowns and parents complaining and, oh my gosh, it's so hard. And, you know, my child is really aggressive. The first thing I say is, where is their device? Where is their alternative method of communication? And it's like crickets. It's like crickets. No one in the room has thought for 10 years that that should be something important. Right. And so now they're blaming the child and they're blaming the autism for how tragic their lives are. Right. And then they're arguing with us about, you know, why don't we have severe, severe? Some kids are severe. I'm not saying that some people don't have a lot of needs and that some people don't have lots of complex situations. I'm saying we could eliminate some of the severity, for lack of a better term if we could at least get communication in place, right? I mean, I'm not even gonna talk about sensory regulation, but communication, which, you know, you need sensory regulation to be able to really communicate efficiently. However, um, communication, I mean, it's, it's, you know, they talk about autistic individuals. Well, you know, they don't, you know, my child doesn't connect with me. And I'm like, how are they supposed to connect with you with no way to communicate? Like, I don't understand, like, like, what are they supposed to do? And I don't think that parents can see 
that because they're looking at the checklist that's thrown in front of them, not to their fault, but the schools and the therapists say they need to tie their shoes. They need to eat the utensil. They need to be able to stand in a line. They need to be able to sit for 15 minutes. Okay, so you eat an apple, you eat vegetables, you stand in line for 15 minutes, or you stand in line without fidgeting, you sit for 15 minutes, you finish a puzzle three times in a row after they've dumped it. What is that going to do for you in the future? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I don't think that they see that, right? I don't think that when parents rely on the schools to do it for them, and not educate themselves and not empower themselves with understanding by reaching out to other parents or signing up for someone's parent coaching or going to trainings and webinars. If you don't know what autism is as, as a parent of someone who's autistic, if you don't understand what your child needs, how is your child supposed to get what they need? You know your kids better than anyone. You may not know the technical terms. You don't need to know the technical terms. You know. My child really struggles when the sun is bright. You don't have to know that that's sensory, um, over-responsive visual system. You know that. But when you tell that to someone who does know the sensory component to that, they can help you come up with strategies. So what parents have to say is valuable. And yes, the schools make it devalued, but I feel like parents should be kicking and screaming to be heard, right? Whether people follow directions or not. Um, so it's very frustrating to me because when you wait and then I'll give a perfect example, I'll share a story. This story is not about any particular parent. This is a scenario that happens very often. Scenario that happens often is a parent gets a diagnosis of autism and someone says, Hey, call Stacy. And they call Stacy. I talk to them. And then I say, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they say, Oh, well, you know what? Pre-K is going so well. Okay. So then they sit on it and they sit on it and they sit on it. And then in second grade, they're calling me. Oh my gosh. They blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, we had pre-K, we had kindergarten, we had first grade. So three years that have gone by and you've done absolutely nothing. Nothing to understand and learn what your child needs because you didn't have to be bothered. They went to school and no one called you. But what you didn't know was they weren't doing shit with your child. Your child was sitting in a corner somewhere. No one was teaching them. No one was saying anything. And the only reason they're calling you now is because now your child is aggressive and throwing a chair and hitting. But that's because in kindergarten, first grade, and if we go back to pre-K, no one saw the sense of urgency to put in proactive strategies to avoid the blow up in second grade. And that is why I am always trying to get parents to listen to do trainings. And they don't have to do it with me. Just listen to somebody. Like somebody. They don't have to, but they should. <laughs> that's what my parents, that's what my long-term parents, my long, my long-term parents are like, I want to super call you. I'm like, they just aren't ready to do the work. They are not ready to do the work. And then for me, when you, when you wait three years, four years, five years, when you find out in middle school, your child is not getting a high school diploma and you were not aware of it because you just signed a piece of paper. You just assumed everyone had your child's best interests. You should have your child's best interests. That's our role as parents, right? And so for me, it's really hard because I take parenting very seriously um, as a parent myself. And I work with parents because I know it's a lot of work. I know it's hard work. And I know there's extra layers of work when you're parenting an autistic kiddo. And so you have to do the work. And yeah, you didn't sign up for that. But there's a lot of stuff we have that happens in life that we didn't sign up for. Life is hard. Life is not planned. It's not a... Oh, a, you know, what's your five-year plan to make it through five years? <laughs> because you can have a five-year plan and then three years down the line, you get breast cancer or your parent dies. Yeah, I, I never understood those five-year plans just because it's so impossible to assess for the unexpected that it's, it almost seems like, 
a wish list, not even a to-do list, a wish list. And I see those as just useless because, like, if I had a million dollars, well, I don't. So what's the point? A lot of people who have these five-year plans are very type A, very controlling, very anxiety. Like, they have a lot of anxiety. So they want to control their lives. So they make this five-year plan. Yeah, and I'm on the spectrum. I like structure and expected things better than anybody. But I'll tell you, then when unexpected things happen, this is off topic, but then when unexpected things happen and don't end up where you're two years in and you've gone completely off course and you see your five-year plan, you just feel like an asshole. So that's why, like, I've had to learn that I have to accept that things are going to happen that are unexpected and that it's going to cause me anxiety and that it sucks, but it's something I just have to be, I have to, like, like embrace how grimy I feel knowing stuff's going to happen that I just cannot predict and I'm not going to react well to it because I'm on the spectrum and I don't react well to changes. So I don't get why people need to do that. And then they don't react well. They 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 use their, those plans. And I guess it's somewhat related, but they use those plans as like gospel. And then when it doesn't work out, but we're, we're a little off course. I want to steer us back to what you were saying, because the problem is, with the example you gave of there were no problems in preschool, there were no problems in kindergarten. Yes, I know I don't pronounce the word problems correctly. I have a speech impediment. And they don't do anything until second grade when it hits the fan. The issue with that is two things. One, how do you know what needs to be worked on if the issues haven't presented themselves until they do? And two, it's less of a question, but I kind of feel for those parents because as an autistic individual, I'm tired all the time having to deal with my autism. If I, if there was a way I could ignore it, I would. So if I was a parent of a kid, I'm just being honest, which is why I'm not a parent, and I had an autistic kid and there wasn't a problem, there were issues, I would 100% ignore them because it's tiring. All the, like, I, I wish I didn't have to be me. I hate it. I hate being, I hate having to overthink everything because everything's not perfectly laid out in my day. I can't function. I hate that. So if I didn't have to do that with a kid, even if it blew up in my face down the road, even if I know it might blow up in my face down the road, I would just accept that risk to not have to be tired and exhausted every freaking day. Yep. Which is which is why I'm not a parent. I just want to lay that out there. This is, which is why I'm not a parent because I would be, I would be just as bad at my job as my father was. Yes, 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 yes. So you are correct, right? In terms of there's not a problem. So what I will say is this. A lot of times they don't see the problem because they're only looking on the surface. Fair enough. They're only looking at the teacher says, oh, they had a great day. The teacher doesn't say they're not getting their work done. The teacher doesn't say they're behind in first grade. The teacher doesn't say any of that. They just say, oh, autistic kid didn't throw a chair. They had a great day. I don't know what that means. What does have a great day mean? I don't know what that means. Oh, it means they didn't it means they didn't bother the teacher. Yes. Or it means that their level of disruption is already like their their average level is already so high. And they've already informed the parent, because I've been in this situation, they've already informed the parent a million times that we do not have the resource to deal with this kid. This kid needs help. Here's a list of some resources that we cannot provide. And that gets ignored. That at a certain point, you're just like, okay, we know he's going, he or she is going to be this, usually he, is going to be this level of rambunctious. Mm -hmm. And it's a pain in the ass that we can deal with it. And we only bring it up to the parent if it goes from the normal level of pain to throwing a chair or punching a kid or doing something that's so disruptive it can't be ignored. So when they say they had a great day, it means they were only at the average level of disruptive and rambunctious and not getting the support needs because we already understand that you don't care about the average level because you've been ignoring it all year. That's, yes. that, that is one definition of that term. So I think what happens is... Um... In terms of you say they don't have any trouble, they don't have any whatever. So I am proactive. I am looking for closing all the loopholes before we have an issue, right? I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait until something happens. Like I'm all about Girl Scout, you know, maybe that's my Girl Scout. You know, there's a Girl Scout since I was six years old. Always be prepared. Always be prepared. Um, uh, I don't know. 
but I am always thinking what could possibly go wrong. You know, I also grew up with hurricanes, so always be prepared with for a natural disaster. That's just your personality because I know people who grew up in those areas. I know people who were Girl Scouts who don't who get angry if you even acknowledge that something could in the near future be a problem if it's not an issue right away and it's unpleasant to deal with that issue. So no, okay. that's just you as a person. Okay, all right. So I am a firm believer in being proactive to avoid chaos if you can, because life is chaotic enough. So when a parent says, well, I don't think I need to use visuals. My two-year-old does fine getting up and going to the bathroom and they brush their teeth. We don't have any problems, right? I'm like, that's wonderful. But guess what? When they turn two and a half, when they turn three, when they turn four, and when they turn five, they're going to have other responsibilities. So if you implement the visual schedule now, while they're able to go through their routine without conflict, as you have to add more things to the schedule, as you have to have routines that are more flexible, as you have to have routines that can be unpredictable, you already have the things in place right? And they are very familiar with it and you can avoid it because visuals are a game changer. I mean, I cannot tell you how significant visuals can be. And I think that those little things can go a really long way to avoid scenarios, right? Um, it's like when people get pregnant and they take classes to for Lamaze to be prepared for birth um, or they take those mommy how to take care of a newborn because maybe they've never taken care of a newborn. Not everybody does that, but a lot of people do. You're trying to be proactive so that you can minimize the stress of doing something you're not familiar with, which is taking care of a newborn. Because everyone is telling you that if you don't do that, a whole bunch of, everyone who you know who's been pregnant is telling you that all of these things are going to happen. So you are convinced, okay, these things are going to happen because everyone I know has been pregnant. When it comes to autistic kids, they tell you the opposite. If it's not a problem now, it might never be a problem. Maybe you got lucky where you didn't get the severely autistic, quote, uh -huh. severely autistic kid. So if they're not having issues going to the bathroom at two years old, maybe that's sign they only had like that mild autism when they're like Bill Gates versus the kid I saw on Facebook having a meltdown their mother posted without their mm -hmm. consent. So that's the difference. They're being convinced by everyone around them. And most people are influenced by people around them. It's just it's just a fact that if they don't take all those classes, they'll be unprepared for birth giving process versus autism is the opposite. See, this is why I love having conversations with you. You always just help me see the light. That's a great perspective, right? I hadn't thought about that. So, okay, fine. So they're told that. So now that I'm telling you different, <laughs> Get off your ass and put some damn visuals in place. And and this is the deal, Torin. I say this because this is not about because Stacy said this is not about Stacy knows. This is not about do what Stacy does. Although some of my parents would disagree with that, but this is not what this is about. This is about I know what happens when you don't. When you don't, I get the call. I can clock it. Second, third grade, I can clock it. I get the call. Oh my gosh, they're regressing. No, they're not regressing. They're finally at a point where they've had enough of not being supported and they cannot take on second grade without supports. You see a lot of what people, I'm glad you brought up regression because we want to talk about the consequences. A lot of what people call regression, once again, I'm using uh, air quotes here, are actually just every autistic kid is different and every autistic kid depending on their mental makeup depending on how their autism presents itself depending on their environment depending on a whole bunch of factors can make it a certain way through life without proper supports and that that certain amount varies per individual but eventually most of these individuals, I would dare to say all individuals who don't have supports in place eventually run out of runway. And that's when things start to go sideways. For a lot of, quote, high functioning individuals who don't have as high support needs, we can bullshit our way up to about 
college or mid-20s, right when like the responsibilities of being a full-on adult kick in. And that's when you just see this massive mental health collapse. You see it over and over again. A lot of undiagnosed autistics get diagnosed at this point after yeah. having a mental collapse. They'll say, they'll say regression or we'll turn to substance abuse or even darker things. And they'll be like, we don't know what happened. They just, no, it's because their lack of supports, the runway finally ran. Because now they're an adult. They don't have anyone helping them. They're on their own. They have new responsibilities. They have no way to self-regulate. They probably don't even know what that is. Even if they do, they haven't been, like with me, I, I knew I was autistic from the time I was eight. But when you, if you've been diagnosed earlier than like last year, uh, supports didn't exist back in 2000. All they have were crazy meds. So even though they knew I was autistic, there was, there was like, eh, there's nothing we can really do about it. It's like, he knows how to talk and he has something resembling an average intellect. So they just threw their hands up. So there's nothing you could do. So by the time I reached my twenties and I came out of a pretty dysfunctional household to begin with, that all caught up to me. And I had some real mental health crises in my twenties because I, I had no, I'm still learning them now. I just had no coping skills. I had no support. I had nothing or very little for Kids with maybe higher support needs, which a lot of people listening to this, they have kids that are a little bit higher support needs. That runway runs out quicker. Yeah. It runs out when they start grade school. Mm -hmm. It runs out in middle school. It runs out in high school. And they quote unquote regress. It's like, yeah. no, they just can't bullshit their way any further. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's interesting you say that because that's what um, students who have learning disabilities, like a learning disability, they can they can they can BS with 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 strategies through first grade and most of second grade. It that it hits the fan in third grade. You there's no way to that because that's when in America that's when it starts getting hard when you actually by about third grade for like math and reading, mm -hmm. you actually have to know how to read. <laughs> At least to some extent, you actually have to be able to like do some sort of math, like yep. actually have some proficiency in it. Otherwise you're going to have a bad time. I mean, it's still possible. I can't, I can't do math, nor can I read. It's still possible for some people to get past that. But for a lot of kids, they can't, because like I said, you actually have to like have the requisite skill sets, which they don't. Like you can, you know, you can BS your way through first grade, second grade with a learning disability, a reading disability, like you kids are really good at compensating and learning strategies. But once you have to do like multiple steps to finish a question, you can't do it then. And that's when it shows up and you you start seeing. Um, and I try to help my parents understand that. that that's when the communication issues also tend to become a real issue. Because yeah. up to about, about eight years old, we just assume like kids can't talk. Have you ever listened to like an average, unless you have a really articulate like kindergarten or first grader, most kids are still sort of getting the hang of this whole talking thing. Like I've worked with kindergartners, first graders, they think they can't talk. Like I do not qualify what most of those kids do as conversating. They 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 can use words. They can take words and they sound something like English. And some of them can even string these English words together into something resembling a sentence. And very few of these five and six-year-olds can string multiple sentences together to make a paragraph where I have an idea what they're saying. But for the most part, they still rely on like grunts and pointing and like gibberish. And we have to sort of just figure out what the hell they're trying to say. That is not talking. But by about, I also work with third graders. By third grade, if a kid can't communicate their needs, we start looking at them like, okay, there's something wrong with this kid. So that's another thing. We talked about communication earlier. That's when that starts to become expected of them as yeah. well. Yeah. And that's a really good point because I think that, you know, the parent perspective of regression, it's like, no, it's just now they have more to say. They have more expectations on them. They have more neurosynapses. They're more aware. It's not regression. It's that they need their supports in place. You know, you didn't have somebody throwing a chair, banging their head on the wall, but you didn't put any supports in place. So now they're throwing a chair and banging their head on the wall, right? Um, and and we have to think about the why, right? Why is that? Well, there are no supports in place, right? And when I say supports, I'm talking simple supports, right? Like visual supports, communication supports, sensory supports, things that you can easily put in place at your home, Um you just have to be consistent and make it accessible and available. And I think that 
not seeing the sense of urgency is why there's not a lot of consistency around making sure it's in place, right? Um, and, you know, I understand life is busy. I get that. But I am always going to be of the mindset that if you decide to parent a child, whether you decided to bring them in the world, whether you accidentally brought them in the world and decided to keep them in the world, whether you took them on from someone else or actively adopted them, you are responsible for making sure they have what they need they need so that they can grow into the person they're supposed to be. And that means you have to not do everything that you had on your five-year plan. <laughs> The five-year plan is just, you know, somebody said to me, Torin, because um, I was talking about, you know, I'm very honest with my parents in a in a, a professional way, in, in, a, in a, I don't want to say professional way. I'm honest with my parents in a genuine way of me caring, right? I'm not like trying to say you are a bad parent. I'm saying, I want you to understand if you don't do this and when you won't do this, this is what it's going to be like 10 years down the line. Is this what you want? Is this part of your five-year plan? Because if it's if it if it's not, then we need to do something different now. And we need to stop making excuses. Making excuses just perpetuates it. It's just the pop-up. I, I think that needs to be emphasized more. They need to be, and I said this earlier, they need to be told what it's going to look like because most parents don't quite get that. I hope a sense of urgency isn't necessary per se, because the average person can't function with that. A sense of urgency is a sense of anxiety. That's what urgency is. When they say a sense of urgency means you're anxious, so anxious you need to do something about it. Most people don't deal well with having that level of anxiety constantly. Like people take medication to deal with that shit. Most people don't think like that. They don't have a sense of urgency unless something's blowing up because they can't function with that sort of Damocles constantly over their heads. So I really hope there's a way we can get this message across of being proactive for the average person, or at least a lot of people who just, they don't think like it. They don't think, if I don't do this, bad things will happen. I, we need to get people in a headspace where they're at, which is we need to convince them they need to do these things because it's the right thing to do. And they need to put in the work because it's the right thing to do, not because the sky is going to fall, because people are going to shut off and tell them that no matter how many times you tell them that. And I don't know if that's possible. I hope it is, but I don't know if it is. And I don't know how. I hate to admit that because I don't like saying things don't work without offering a solution. But I don't know. I just hope. Well, I think the solution is, part of the solution is, you know, a lot of the work that I do and, and other folks do who are, are sort of like-minded is you really have to shift the narrative of parents um, and how they think of their autistic child and how they speak of their autistic child. You know, uh, parents sometimes don't do anything or feel a sense of urgency because they literally think their child's never going to be able to do anything. Like they just have no clue that they're going to be able to do anything. I mean, they literally think autism means you're just going to be sitting in a corner all day not doing anything. I'm like, no. Listen, just because that's what I do doesn't mean that that's going to be your child. Stop saying that, Charlie. That's not what we do. You do bring up a good point, though. The problem is, and I doubt this as a kid, if you have so many, if you have no expectations of your kid, you're not going to be like, well, what's the point? That's what happened to me, where they knew I had hearing issues. They knew I, I couldn't read, basically. They knew I couldn't, I, I had dyscalculia, I had dyslexia. They knew I probably had ADHD. They knew I had all these things because I was also autistic. And we have documentation. I've read it on the podcast. But because I was autistic, they were, my parents and the doctors just like, eh, screw it, he's screwed anyway. Mm -hmm. Like it, it does, it, 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 there's nothing, there's nothing we can do that's just re-erecting deck chairs on a Titanic because evidently I was the Titanic. There's no point in offering any of these supports. So even though they knew I needed supports, they didn't bother because what was the point mm -hmm. from their perspective? Yes, yes. And I think maybe that's, you know, one of the, the, uh, one of the the sort of narratives that needs to be shifted is you a parent will know their child can be more than just sitting in the corner if they actually learn about autism from autistic individuals now everyone's different everyone has a different journey everyone has a different life that happens and everyone has different parents and cultures 
But if you don't go outside of your bubble and you don't figure out what autism is, then you're not going to know your child can't, right? Um, so let me ask you this. I don't know if this has to do. Well, it does have to do. It's one of my uh, my little pet peeves when I hear someone say, um, well, I just treat them like I treat all my kids. Okay, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? So treating children the same, um, uh, does that mean, you know, everybody gets a cookie? Does that mean you fuss at everybody? Does that mean you make everybody accountable? I don't really know what that means. Basically, you know what it means. <laughs> well, yes, I know what it means. So that means my interpretation is your expectation is for your autistic child to not be autistic and to do it like your children who are not autistic or your nieces who are not autistic. So you say, I just treat them like everyone else. Now, what I think most parents are trying to say is, I have expectations for my child. I expect them to clean up their toys. I can, and I say clean up your toys. Torin, I cannot tell you, I have been in homes when I used to do in-home, like all day long, all I did was go in homes. I will never forget this sweet little mom. And her, her son came in, and he put his jacket, like, just threw everything on the floor, right? A little five, seven-year-old, seven, he was in elementary school. And I sat there, and and she went to pick it up, and I was like, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm just going to put his stuff away. And I said, well, why can't he put his stuff away? He seems to be physically mobile. He has terminal autism, that's why. Yeah, he does, he does, he does. So I said, just because your child is autistic does not mean he can't be held as responsible and accountable for his items and putting his backpack on the hook and putting his jacket somewhere else besides the floor like wherever jackets are supposed to go is not something that you should just ignore that is like something he needs to be able to do so what are your expectations for him? It, like, is somebody going to run around him the rest of his life? Because you're not going to live forever longer. Typically, we die as parents first. So, are you who are you going to hire somebody to like run around? And eh, he'll he'll figure it out eventually. That that's their strategy. Either they're not thinking about it at all, or and eh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah, when they're teenagers and they're mad because they don't pick up anything. Well, see, then they call you in crisis and expect you to fix it. Yes. And then I say, well, what are their responsibilities? Well, what do you mean? <laughs> so what are they responsible for throughout the day? And let's go into that. Let's segue into, that's another one of my pet peeves. Not giving your autistic child responsibilities. Just because a child has a disability, whether they are in a wheelchair, whether they're hearing impaired, whether they're autistic, whether they're ADHD, whatever it is. That doesn't mean they can't put away their dishes and pick up their toys. What you must understand is these children you're talking about, they have trademark the autism, capital T, capital A. They have the autism. And when you have the autism, you, you can't expect anything because if they need help <laughs> with some things, it must mean, because this is perfectly logical, it must mean they need help with everything. It's just like, how if you can't do your own taxes, that much mean you also can't wipe your own ass. Yeah. And, you know, probably more than likely, those parents probably clean up after all their kids, right? Which, you know, I don't, as a parent, I don't know why anybody signs up for that. I'm not cleaning up after human beings who can move their bodies, right? You know, I'm going to organize it so that you're set up for success, but I'm not picking up your stuff. And I think that... The assumed competency part is where we have got to shift the narrative, especially with parents, because if they listen to doctors or listen to therapists, if they don't have the assumption that their child is competent and can, then they're not going to be able to be and become and be responsible because you don't think your kiddo can, you know, and I don't understand why people think their children are incompetent when they say, oh, well, you know, I don't think their receptive language is really good. I'm like, you just told me that they changed all the passwords on the iPad and they're changing the thing, the languages on the computer 
and they're able to go in and find what they want on amazon.com. What part of lack of language reception are you talking about? I don't that understand. is totally something I would do as a kid. I know that's, that's off topic, but I would definitely do that as a kid. I love that. I will never forget. I think I told that story to a 16-year-old. They're like, well, we don't think he can read. <laughs> the child ordered from China using his <laughs> credit card. I think he reads very well. He got everything he wanted. He at least understands pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he may not be able to add and understand the concept of money because he ordered hundreds of dollars of stuff on his parents' American Express card. Well, n neither can I. You can work with that because I can't do that either. Yes. And, you know, why should a 16-year-old have to worry about money? It's not his money. It's his parents' credit card. I, I would make an argument that most 16-year-olds have no concept of money. Like when you have an 18-year-old kid sign a college, uh, a loan for college that says he's going to owe $100,000, most 18-year-olds most have no conception of what $100,000 is, and it's stupid to expect them to. Yeah. I think because they also think, oh, well, I'm going to make a lot of money. And I'm like, you know, all your money is going to go to rent and utilities, right? They're 18. They don't expect that. No, they don't. They don't. They don't. They think the house just comes with everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let's review. Let's review. So number one, pet peeve. And my pet peeves are not around me annoyed with parents. My pet peeves are around, I need our kiddos to have skill sets that they can go into the world. And I don't want anybody to wait because waiting just makes it harder. Makes it harder. I repeat waiting for the chair to be thrown, waiting to teach them how to wash their clothes, waiting to teach them how to wash dishes just makes it harder in the long run. And when they're older, it is more difficult because they're older. They're older. You can't allow your child to do whatever they want to do and buy them stuff all the time and then expect when they're 15, say, whoa, 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 whoa. No more purchases. Well, you've given them free reign to go. I went to a house. Oh my gosh, this is so funny, Torin. I was at a home and this was the child I was speaking about. The child I'm talking about was not an autistic child. It was a sibling of the child. And this little two-year-old girl, two or three, she comes in the room to her mom. She's all got her little heels and she got her little purse, you know, little girls who love to wear little purses. And, and she's like, ready to go. And I'm like, oh, where's she going? And the mom said, oh, she likes to go shopping. I said, she's three. She said, oh, yeah, she likes to go out to the stores and buy things. I said, oh, how does she respond when, you know, you don't bring her to the store and she can't, you know, get the things? That's really cute. But, you know, oh, no, I let her. She can only get one thing each day. I said, so you bring her to the store every day and she buys something? Yeah, but just one thing. So you bring her to the store every day. And she buys something and she's two. Yeah, but she can only get one thing. So you bring a two-year-old to the store every day to make a purchase. And then we wonder why when they're five and they want the expensive thing and you have to say no, why they're upset. They should be upset. You brought them to the store and let them control the situation from age two to go shopping. When a two-year-old tells a parent, let's go to the store so I can buy something, I have a huge problem with that. Huge problem with that. Because I know what happens. If you've ever watched Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil will tell you. So why does she still have the credit card? Well, we don't want her to get upset. Ah. You want them to be happy. So you never say no. That doesn't make people happy. It makes them miserable because that expectation can't be met all the time. So just saying, we have to set boundaries. We have to set expectations, but we have to support them so they can meet those expectations. So my pet peeve, ignoring the fact that communication is a priority. My other pet peeve, not making kids accountable and giving them responsibilities, huge. My other big, you know, and this is probably just, personal in terms of, um, you know, it just really bothers me when, when the person responsible for raising a human being does not take the time to learn anything about autism. I even have more respect when someone learns, you know, 
I'm going to do ABA 40 hours a week for the next 10 years. At least you looked at something, right? Opposed to not looking at anything. Now that's not really my cup of tea, but at least you learn and went out and searched. And I don't really know. I just want parents to know when you don't act, when you don't implement when you don't advocate and you can't advocate until you educate yourself when you don't do that it is not good for your child it is not in the best interest of your child and when it's not in the best interest of your child it impacts the entire family it is far easier to put the work in the first few years of your child's life and it's so much easier afterwards i'm not saying it's not tough parenting. I'm saying it's easier. It's easier when you set it up in the beginning and start and do the work when they're little. It's so much easier later. It really is. My dad once told me a story about when he was in high school. And he said, everyone thinks that it, everyone thinks the laziest thing you can do is to fail out of a class, is to fail an entire year because you did absolutely no work. And that if you're trying to do the least amount of work possible, that is the, the, that is the least amount of work can possibly do is no work and just fail the year. And he says, no. He said, Torn, the most important thing to understand is that's actually more work because you fail the year, you have to repeat it. The key is to do the absolute bare minimum necessary to make sure you pass the class, you don't have to do it again. You don't have to be perfect. You yep. don't have to do all of the things. You have to know the things that must be done and those need to be done. You have to do that. You can call it bare minimum, you can call it necessities, whatever. Do the things that need to be done to make sure that it doesn't blow up in your face because then you will be doing more work on the back end. You will be yep. retaking the entire semester Except this time, it's going to involve a lot of screaming, meltdowns, and chairs being thrown, and probably the cops being called once or twice, and ACS, or child services, knocking on your door. So yeah. just do the work the first time. Pass the class the first time, mm -hmm. the best you can. Figure out what the requirements are and meet those requirements and worry about the other stuff later. That should be your number one priority. That's last... a really good... Uh, no, no, Torn, I like that because I think that when you said you spend the time and the energy, you don't need to spend three months on tying shoes. You need to spend those months on getting communication in place. Who cares if you can tie your shoes if you can't ask for juice or tell somebody that you lost or if your stomach hurts? What's the point of tying your shoes? Who cares if you eat a well-balanced meal and you can't communicate and participate in class? Because a kid with untied shoes, teacher then thinks blames the parent for that. But if the kid's autistic, they assume he can't talk. They assume he can't communicate. So it doesn't reflect as badly on the parent. That's that's just the reason. That is so. That's why parents have to educate themselves so that they know it's not a priority. And what are my priorities for my child? What do I want my child to have access to when they get into their adult years? Um, and not just assuming your child's going to sit with you, you know, like forever. And I had a my last and I lost it just that quick um oh i got it back i'm going to say my last my last one and and remember these are pet peeves of i want parents to avoid having situations where they have crisis leader right like how do we do that so a lot of times one of the things that you know parents say is oh you know i'm so tired i'm so tired i'm so tired i'm so tired yeah Parenting's exhausting. I don't know if you read the manual, but you're tired the rest of your life when you decide to become a parent, right? So, oh, I don't feel sorry for you. I know that drill. It's freaking exhausting, right? From day one. So you know that you have a lot on your plate. What are you doing to avoid being so tired? One of my moms was really struggling. And I simply said to her, do you take a multivitamin? No. Take a multivitamin at lunch. Every day at lunch, I want you to start taking multivitamins. Two weeks later, we meet and she's like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe taking a multivitamin made such a difference. Yeah, it does. 
There's a reason why they have multivitamins. Like we are all running, you know, spinning our wheels, trying to work, manage children, manage households. And some people have more responsibilities than others. But speaking of that, you need to, like we said in the other podcast, you have to reprioritize your responsibilities when you have a child that receives a diagnosis. And, and I will quickly share, Torn, I know you had something to say. I'll quickly share and I'll be done. Because um, somebody said to me, and I'm very well aware of the fact that I don't have an autistic child that I raised, right? Now, my children have other things that I have to deal with. I have an adult son that had unexpected mental health crisis. That was not in our five-year plan, right? That was not in our plan, but we had to deal with it. So someone said to me, well, you don't know what it's like, you know, to have to decide that, um, you know, you've been working for your career and, and now you have a child with a diagnosis and it's easy for you to say that, um, there, you know, you put it aside and, and now you can't take the position you've been working hard for. I'm like, well, I actually do. Because when I was in the final semesters of my master's program, I was offered an opportunity, but I got pregnant. I was married. I had my first child that I planned. And I said, I can't take that opportunity because I got a baby that I want to be with, right? I don't want to leave my baby for this opportunity. Great opportunity. I love opportunities. I love doing new things. I had to put that aside and make being the mom that I wanted to be as a priority. And that was my choice because it was important to me to be available to my child that I decided to have and bring into this world. So I understand and I do it all the time. I mean, I think I, think I probably do more I think I sometimes feel like I work more for my children now that they're older than I did when they were younger, right? When they were younger, it was food, shelter, the basics, right? Now I'm working for other things that are much bigger and so, well, bigger to me. And so thinking in terms of, I'm not saying that parents don't have a right to have their own stuff. I'm saying we have to shift our priorities when situations come up because that's what being in a family is. The five-year plan doesn't always, it never pans out. I've never known anybody with a five-year plan actually to have the plan come through, ever. And they're so stressed when it doesn't because they counted on. Torn, people have five-year plans to the point of, well, you know, I'm going to get married at 25 and I'm going to have my first baby. I'm like, how the hell do you think you're going to have that happen? You're literally setting yourself up for frustration when you put a plan like that in place, but you go right ahead because your type A personality needs to do that. And you go right ahead. I'm just, you're just going to be frustrated. And they are. Well, as we bring this in, because we are not only up against time, we are probably over time at this point. Um, the last thing I want to mention is everything we're saying, being proactive, not waiting for something to be a problem before it's a problem understanding your child's needs, doing your own research, all of that stuff is not extra stuff you have to do because you're an autistic parent, because it's stuff that every parent should do and they don't. See, all being all being an autistic parent is forcing you to do is you actually have to be a good parent. Like it's like you can have a neurotypical kid or a kid with a disability that has less needs like ADHD where you can really suck at your job and the kid might not turn out up. If you have an autistic child, the likeliness of your child being completely messed up if you completely fail at your job is significantly higher because they have higher support needs. Yes. So instead of seeing it as extra work, see it as, oh, there's an opportunity for me to actually be a good parent because being a good parent isn't just getting likes on social media. It's making sure your your child's needs are actually met and they're not yes. having to fend for themselves and figure things out when they're six that they should be having help with. So the last thing I want to leave you with is this isn't an extra burden. I know you're tired. I'm not even a parent and I'm tired just being autistic and I've worked with autistic kids. I, I get it to some extent. Yes. But see it as an opportunity. And I know it sounds like woo, woo positivity stuff, but it's true. See it as an opportunity to really be really, 
we know some of the parents we work with are so good. They are some of the best parents I know. And like I said, I work with a lot of parents. Stacy has worked with a lot of parents, all different types of kids. The best parents we've seen have been parents for autistic kids because they have to be. They have mm -hmm. to step up to the moment. So see yeah. this as an opportunity to be that model parent because I see we've interviewed. So every parent we've had on here is a model parent. They are, they're not perfect, but they are so good. And I am so confident that their children are going to turn out okay. And I've worked with so many parents where I see the parent, I see how they parent, I see the kid and I go, oh, shit. Yeah. don't, don't be that parent. And you have an opportunity to not be that parent. So see it like that. And with that, I'm done. <laughs> I have nothing else to say based on that. Thank you so much, Torin. So Stacy, that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. See ya.